Hello, and welcome to episode three of Reframing the Gospel. Rather than an interview, this will be more of a reflective and contemplative episode. If you didn't tune in to my conversation with Nathan Walton about the prosperity gospel last week, my hope is that you can still engage with this episode in a meaningful way. However, if you want to go back and listen to that episode before listening to this one, it might give you some helpful context. Nathan, in the last episode, does an excellent job of talking about this topic in a very nuanced and compassionate way. And I think that's in large part because of his experience getting to know and spend time with people who hold this belief. That being said, I do want to acknowledge and hold space for the variety of perspectives and experiences those listening may have. I personally see the prosperity gospel as a distortion of the good news that Jesus proclaimed and lived out. But like Nathan expressed, there are good and legitimate reasons that so many people are attracted and compelled by the prosperity gospel. So if you're someone who strongly dislikes this set of beliefs, I hope this can be a space for you to foster an extra measure of grace and compassion for those who hold them. And if you're someone who feels drawn to and enticed by the prosperity gospel, I hope this can be a space for you to grapple with those good and natural longings and how God might be calling you to refocus them. I want to start our time together in this episode with a time of guided prayerful meditation. Prayerful meditation is not a complete emptying of our minds, but simply a quiet posture of listening for what God might be saying to us, or ways that God's Spirit might be moving within us. So let the words of this prayer wash over you as I pray them before we enter together into a brief time of silent reflection and prayerful meditation. Incarnate God, open our hearts our minds, and our bodies to the reality of your presence here with us now. If we are overcome with or numbed by the heavy emotions we carry, let us experience their fullness with you, knowing that no emotion is too big for you to handle. If we are anxious or overwhelmed by all of the thoughts racing through our heads, let us experience their fullness with you, knowing that your presence is never overwhelming or chaotic. And if we are tense, tired, or completely disconnected from our bodies, let us experience the fullness of our embodiment with you, knowing that you love and care for our whole selves, including our physical bodies. We open ourselves to you, God, trusting that you care and that you are here. Speak to our hearts, our minds, and our bodies now in this moment of prayerful meditation. continue on, I want to briefly reflect on the concepts of prosperity and suffering. 
How we understand these two realities and their role in the Christian life can play a huge part in our understanding of God, our neighbors, and ourselves. For this reason, I think it's incredibly important that we take the time to reflect and ponder them, asking the Holy Spirit to speak truth into our hearts and minds. First, I want to circle back to something Nathan and I talked about in the previous episode. The idea that the prosperity gospel and its appeal illustrates a real and objectively good desire that many of us have. The desire of of assurance that God sees our physical and material reality, that he cares about that aspect of our lives, and that he wants us to flourish in both of those regards. However, as most of us probably know, our faith rarely seems to precipitate physical and material flourishing. In fact, it often seems to be the most faithful who flourish the least. That doesn't add up if we believe that God always rewards faithfulness with health and wealth. This, I believe, is what makes the prosperity gospel so appealing to so many people. It promises its followers that if they just have enough faith, God will bless them, both physically and financially. And it's very tempting to believe this because, of course, we want to believe that God cares about our physical and financial well-being. If God is all-powerful and truly wants us to flourish in these ways, then why wouldn't he bless us? That's really the big question, isn't it? If God doesn't want us to be sick or poor or hungry, then why doesn't he, with his unlimited power and resources, provide for all of our needs? I think if I had the answer to this question, I would, ironically, have an abundance of financial resources. This, unfortunately, is not the case. There's no, easy, there's no easy answer to this question of why. Why is there so much suffering in the world? In light of so much pain and hardship, why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make all things right? In his excellent book, Embodied Hope, a theological meditation on pain and suffering. Kelly M. Capic addresses this natural longing we have for answers to this huge question. He says, When guided by the need for justifications and answers, growing Christian attempts to explain the ways of God tend to foster distortions, especially in pastoral situations. Swinton, an author Capic quotes, highlights three of the most common consequences. First, says Capic, such explanations, by trying to integrate evil as part of the world, often end up justifying or rationalizing evil, rather than confessing and naming it. Too often, when Christians start to defend God in this way, they end up calling evil or suffering good. Second, When people mistake theodicies for pastoral care, the voice of the sufferer is often silenced. Rather than offering the comforting presence of compassionate listening, these abstractions smother the wounded with useless and often inaccurate explanations. This works a form of violence against the hurting one, whether unintentional or not. And finally, These attempts to justify and explain why the evil has occurred can actually become evil in themselves, promoting further suffering rather than providing genuine comfort. Later on in the chapter, Capic says, Pastors and friends are not called to explain away the pain or to try to give moral lessons for why a particular event is happening. We simply are not privy to such information. 
while God can and does bring about good through our suffering, that is not the same thing as knowing why God allows it. Nor is it the same thing as saying that God thinks our suffering is good. If we believe that God thinks our physical suffering is essentially good, we misunderstand the Creator and Redeemer, and we are brought to the temptation of having what Caput calls hard thoughts about God. Believing him to be more like a dispassionate scientist or a cruel tyrant rather than a loving father. While it is true that amid our fallen world, God can and does work through our pain and suffering, that does not mean he delights in our discomfort. And it does not mean that we can substitute theoretical reasoning for justified lament. End quote. What Capic is saying in these two excerpts is really, really important. Time and time again, I see Christians try to explain suffering in extremely unhelpful ways. The intention may be good, but explanations like those that Capic illustrates can be very damaging to the person suffering. It can be harmful when we tell these things to ourselves in times of hardship as well. When we experience something difficult and painful, it's tempting to look for the silver lining and reassure ourselves that God must intend some kind of positive outcome, even if we can't see it yet. However, to reiterate that last quote once more, it's true that God can and does work goodness through our pain and suffering, but that doesn't mean that God delights in our discomfort. And it doesn't mean that we can substitute theoretical reasoning for justified lament. By this last statement, Capic is saying that there will never be a theory or reason for why suffering occurs that will ever have the same healing effect as lament. Lament is a form of prayer that offers no easy or trite explanations for hardship and suffering. It doesn't let God off the hook, but gives the one praying space to fully voice all of their anger, grief, and pain before God. Prayers of lament hold this pain and tension with a deep and abiding trust in God that he hears our cries and is present for us in our hour of distress. There are many examples of lament in the Old Testament book of Psalms. For example, Psalms chapter 6 says, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. I want to take some time now to make a little bit of space for us to practice this way of expressing ourselves to God. Wherever you are and whatever you're currently doing, take something heavy, painful, or distressing that you're holding and fully lay it before God. If you're angry about an unfair or unjust situation, Grieving a loss or disappointment or just exhausted and exasperated by the grind of life, be brutally honest with God about it. And instead of saying at the end, but I know that some kind of good will come from this, try saying, how long, O oh Lord? Or where are you in the midst of this 
painful thing. I can't promise that you will find answers to these questions, but I know that in times when I've cried out to God, he's always been faithful to reassure me of his comforting presence in some way, shape, or form. So I invite you to listen as I initiate this time of quiet lament. And in the space that follows, please feel free to engage with this practice however you feel led. God of the brokenhearted, assure us of your strong and steady presence as we cry out to you. Give us the courage to lay our whole selves before you now, knowing that you see and accept the fullness of our grief, our anger, and our sadness. Be near to us, O Lord, and open our eyes to the extent of your compassion and care in the midst of our distress. We long for the day when you heal every wound and wipe the tears from every eye. We do not understand all of the suffering and hardship we see and experience, but in this, in this moment we lay it before you, knowing that you are good, you are here with us, and that you care. At this point, I want to turn our attention back to what I felt was an important part of my conversation with Nathan. As we talked about the prosperity gospel, it became clear in my mind that a big hole in the evangelical theology I grew up with and now work in has to do with embodiment and community. Embodiment being how we view and understand our physical bodies and their role in our Christian spirituality. The white Western Protestant Christian subculture that has shaped a great deal of evangelical theology often puts a heavy emphasis on rationality, logic, knowledge, and understanding. And while none of these are bad things, I admit that I tend to be an intellectual by default. If they're raised above the physical, our theology and spiritual practices can easily become lopsided. As a result, the good and natural longings we all have inevitably become distorted and misdirected. Our desire to know that God cares about our physical and material well-being, for example, can be misdirected towards the prosperity gospel. Instead of encouraging its followers towards a more embodied faith, the prosperity gospel gives people a way to rationally and logically feel as though God cares about their physical and material needs. As modern Western Protestant Christians, a big reason for our de-emphasis on the bodily and physical has to do with the infiltration of two non-Christian ideologies, Platonism and Gnosticism. I'm not going to dive deeply into these two ideas in this episode, but I would definitely encourage you to do your own research on them and look for the ways that they've influenced modern Christianity. 
What both these schools of thought propose on a very basic and simplified level is essentially that human beings are dualistic creatures. That, they're, that we're made up of body and soul, or body and spirit. And these two parts are not equal. The spirit is the higher and more important element within Platonism and Gnosticism, whereas the body is lower and considered something that we must eventually escape out of. This asymmetrical dualism, to use a fancy word, is quite common in our modern understanding of Christianity, but it turns out to actually be quite unbiblical. Again, I don't have time to unpack all of the reasons that I believe this is true, but if you feel uncertain, I would highly recommend you read the book I quoted earlier, Embodied Hope by Kelly M. Capick. He does an excellent job explaining these ideas and how scripture clearly supports them. In a chapter from this book on embodiment, he writes, quote, Unlike Plato's philosophy, the biblical presentation frames original human goodness within bodily existence, not apart from it. Our physicality was not a problem to be overcome, but a gift essential to our existence. Regardless of how one works through the difficult issues related to body and soul, the Bible presents a unified picture of the human person. Put differently, communion with God and others was always meant to take place in and through the body, not apart from it. This was our created state. This will be our ultimate hope. End quote. A little later on in the same chapter, he says, quote, Raised from the earth, the human creature was made to commune with God. Genesis links humanity with the land, not as cursed, but as good and fruitful. From the dirt comes the human person. It is God's earth out of which humankind is taken. From it, human beings have their bodies. The body belongs to a person's essence. Rather than viewing the body as some prison or empty shell for the human, Bonhoeffer affirms the integrity of our being in these two forms. A human being is a human body. A human being does not have a body or have a soul. Instead, a human being is body and soul. The Genesis account of creation celebrates the good unity of the human person, and it traces our connection to the earth. We really are what you might call earthlings. Our existence occurs not as beings who drop out of the sky, but rise from the dust. Filled with the divine breath, we live and then respond to his free love, entering into joyful communion with the Father who made all things. And yet, writes Capic, the wonder of this creaturely freedom is that we are not only to understand ourselves as free from the other, but also as free for the other. This enables us to understand our distinctive call to exercise covenantal care over the rest of the earth. End quote. I love that phrase, not only free from the other, but free for the other. Like you, I still have a lot of questions for God about why suffering exists and why he doesn't do more to alleviate it. However, rather than focusing on all of the ways that God could mitigate suffering and does not, what if we instead focused on all of the resources God has provided for us to care for and be cared for by each other in community? What if the abundance of evil, pain, and suffering we witness and experience actually has more to do with how we, as the people of God, 
have failed so repeatedly to be the body of Christ, failed to embody God's hands and feet and voice as agents of healing and reconciliation in the world around us. I think it's absolutely appropriate to ask God why and how long before he sets things right. But I also think it's important to ask ourselves and our communities, why is there so much suffering around us? And why aren't we doing more with our God-given resources about it? This is a question that I'm definitely not exempt from. To bring us back around to the theme of this podcast, what is the good news amidst all of this? How does a more nuanced and complex understanding of suffering and prosperity reframe our perspective of the gospel in a healthy way? I can't answer these questions for you, but I know in my own personal life, wrestling with these concepts has done a lot to strengthen my faith in a God who is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Like I said earlier, I don't understand all of the suffering and evil in the world. But I know that God is somehow most present in the hardest moments of life. My faith is not that God will completely prevent me from suffering or always prosper me financially, but that regardless, he will be present, especially when I'm at my lowest. As you ponder all of these big and heavy things, I hope you'll invite God into the questions with you. He's big enough to hold them, and he's big enough to hold us as we ask them. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Tune in next week for a really interesting conversation about the church and creative destruction with my next guest, Josh Hayden. It's going to be great. See you there.